We're really going to just be looking at one passage this morning. It's in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 4. And so you can go over there. There's two stories in this um, in this passage. And uh, anybody remember off the top of your head, this is good Bible quiz time. I'll pray in just a minute as we start. But anybody remember, what's the, what's the most famous story occurs in the Gospel of John chapter 4? Anybody have that part memorized? It's okay. I mean, there's a thousand chapters in the Bible. I'd have not a clue what was in it. But, but I happen to know this one. Bobby, do you remember off the top of your head? The woman at the well, right? And, and for most of my life, if I was going to say John chapter 4, I think woman at the world. Woman at the well, right? John chapter 3, Nicodemus. And so, but it turns out that's not the only story in John chapter 4. There's another one. And it's the, it's the other one we're going to look at today. So, um, you bow your heads with me. So, Lord God, as we attach your word and we explore what you've said, Father, I ask that you would speak to each of our hearts, that we would hear what you would say and nothing else. God, I thank you that uh, you have left this faithful testament of your heart and what you wanted us to know about you and Jesus, your earthly ministry. May your truth cling to our hearts and our minds until we're changed by it and anything else fall aside. In Jesus' name, amen. And so, uh, as Heidi mentioned, last week we heard from Michael Barker, and he brought this powerful message on prayer. And so this week we're going to look at, take a look at how Jesus responds to a man's heartfelt request for his child's life. Now, um, just as a point of background, there's a lot of uh, stories in Scripture that line up, particularly in the Synoptic Gospels. Um, anybody remember which Gospels are the Synoptic Gospels? This is good, just good Bible trivia. So there's the four Gospels, and three of them are called the Synoptic, as in they, it's like sin, optic, same image. And so that's, that's Mark, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you'll see that there's a whole bunch of parallels between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then there's this, this other one. Some people call John, they'll, they'll refer to it as the spiritual gospel, I guess. Um, but John has, just as he writes his gospel, has a little bit of a different flavor. Um, even though it's, it's a gospel, it's the story of Jesus, and, and Carrick teaches us a lot about this. Um, but there's, uh, I, as I was looking into this, a lot of times I'm looking at the parallel stories. And at first I thought there might have been some, uh, I thought the story that we're going to look at might also occur in the other gospels. Um, because there's a very similar story that appears in both in Luke and Matthew. But if I look at it, you can look it up if you want. It's Luke chapter 10, or Luke 7 and Matthew chapter 8. Um, and, uh, and I haven't even read the story yet. But if you, if you look at it, there's some distinct differences between the, that story and this story. So I do not believe we're talking about the same event, um, even though there's some, some, uh, some overlap. And so what I'll do is I'll actually jump in and we'll actually read the passage. So I'm going to be in John chapter 4, and then I'm going to look at uh, just the end of John chapter 4, and beginning in verses, uh, verse 46. And so here's the story. I'll read this whole passage, um, John four forty-six through 54. We're talking about Jesus. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he, had been, where he had made the water into wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, 
Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. And so he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And then they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he came when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. And so, uh, and just as a, a point of reference, uh, the, the other stories, it talks about a, a Roman centurion, and he's actually in Capernaum. Capernaum is mentioned in this story, but Jesus is not in Capernaum here. He's actually in Cana. And so, um, if you were to see a, a map, there's the, uh, I'll try and put it reverse in my mind. So, here's the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel, modern day, and then there's some mountains, and then over here would be the Mediterranean. And the Cana is about 14 miles or so, 14, 15 miles to the west of the Sea of Galilee. And then if they came over here from Cana, so that's where he turned water into wine. If they came over here and went up around Galilee, Capernaum, which is the place where this uh, this royal official is from, it's on the top side of the Sea of Galilee. And it's still there. And that's the place where Jesus healed um, Peter's mother-in-law. There's several things that happened there. He also taught in the synagogue there. There's a, there's a bunch of stuff that happened there. So he's maybe about maybe 20 miles away from Capernaum in this spot. And he's out there kind of in these mountain range is, is where Cana is, is at. And, uh, and so that's kind of the, the context. So, so I'm just going to make a couple of observations about this passage. So people saw Jesus do supernatural things because he had just been through the feast. You remember the, the woman at the well? Which region was the woman at the well at? Which was the region she was in? Samaria, right? And so before that, it appears that Jesus had been down at Israel, in Jerusalem and he'd been at a feast, probably the Passover, I'm assuming. And so he was down there and he made his way back up to the, the Galilee, the region of Galilee. And so instead of going up this way, he went up this way through Samaria, which was the scandalous thing. And he met the woman at the well and then he came through and hit Cana. And so, which is some familiar territory because he'd already made water into wine at Canaan previously. So that's kind of the path where he had been coming back up. And then, uh, and so the people had been hearing rumors about what Jesus did in Jerusalem. And they were in Cana. So there, it's possible there's a little bit of sense of, hey, this is our guy, right? He made water into wine in our town. What else is he going to do? And so the people had seen Jesus do supernatural things. At least they'd heard rumors. I don't know how many people were at that wedding, right? Um, and so they'd heard rumors about what he did in Jerusalem, and then he's back in Cana. Hey, this is the supernatural guy. And then there was the man, this royal official, came to Jesus, and he had a need. His child was sick, near death. And Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And I think it's interesting, I just want to point out, it says, unless you, in your Bibles, if it says, um, some of them might say, uh, you people. Does anybody's Bible say you people? As opposed to you, unless you, I see Tanya. So the thing I want you to notice there is people, if you have it, is probably in italics because it's implied. If you look in your Bible and you're reading your Bible and you see words in italics, that usually means that's not in the original language, but it's implied by the words around it. So it doesn't mean it's a bad translation. They're just adding clarity 
Um, and so when Jesus it says Jesus spoke to the man, the royal official, and he says, unless you, but he wasn't pointing at the man and saying you individual believe. He was saying you, everybody believe. And then when the royal official, the man points back at Jesus, he doesn't say, I believe. He doesn't argue. He just says, dude, if you could say that to a rabbi, um, I'm worried about my kid. That's, that's, that's my thing, right? He says, sir, in verse 49, in the, says, sir, come down before my child dies. He doesn't argue about, about miracles. He, he's not worried about any of that stuff. He just wants to save. He wants Jesus to come and save his, his son's life. So Jesus does not go with him. Remember, he asked Jesus to come to where his son is. But Jesus doesn't go. But he simply says that his child's going to recover. And the man chooses to believe and heads for his home in Capernaum. Somewhere along the journey, he's met by his servants from his house, and they're there to tell him that his child is recovering. So there's three main characters, right? There's the crowd, the official, and Jesus. And, uh, and I'm going to try and keep moving, just, just so you know. I'm, I want to complete this, but I will keep moving. And so the crowd wants something dramatic. They've heard stories about Jesus, and they want to see it for themselves, Right? And so the crowd, this official represents the perfect opportunity, right? Because he's important, he's wealthy, and he has a big problem that nobody else can solve, right? And so this dramatic problem, this sick kid, because they're not in love with this man's child. They're, They're there for something exciting. And so that sick kid becomes an opportunity for them to have a dramatic solution because Jesus does dramatic things, right? And so, by the way, anybody pray for like super famous people because it would be really awesome. Could you imagine what if so-and-so became a follower of Jesus? Has anybody had that thought flash in their mind? Thank you for honesty. I see a couple of people. You know? Yeah, thank you. I've prayed for, for people. And so there's the thing. Pray for them, right? They're people. They need to be prayed for. Let's don't like pray for famous people. I'm not saying don't do that. But I found there's some places in my heart when, when sometimes maybe... Maybe I might be distracted by the, the potential drama as opposed to the, the potential righteousness being manifest in someone's life. And so I think that might be a little bit where these folks were at. So the official who is, who would, who is leveraging everything he has in his moment, not because he's important or rich, but because he's a dad, he's a father, and he found himself in a situation where his money, his power, and his influence could do nothing. And so he has no hope to save the thing that he loves, his son, except for Jesus. And Jesus knows the crowd loves excitement, stories, drama. Jesus knows this father loves his child. And Jesus is really good at separating that which is pure from that which is not. And so in verse 48, Jesus says, unless you people, plural, see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. And the words translated as signs and wonders are semion and teres. I won't go into a a whole lot, but even though they sound different, they mean very, very similar. And uh, in fact, I'll just say they mean signs and wonders, things that uh, don't naturally occur. Something that's obviously not normal would be a sign or a wonder in this sort of thing. And so, uh, and then the crowd, I believe that they were there. They wanted something exciting to talk about. And they were suggesting, it would appear by Jesus' response, that they were suggesting um, they were, and they were apparently suggesting that Jesus needed to provide it so that they could believe, 
right? Wasn't this a kind of a theme? What sign are you going to give us so that we can know that you are who you say you are? This is kind of a theme throughout Jesus' ministry. It's not the only place that happens. And so I would say that at face value, the crowd could actually ask for that. And they were sound like they were being right. Remember Moses and Aaron? They went before Pharaoh. What did they do? All kinds of crazy signs. Things like, remember the, the staff? Moses' staff goes on the ground. It turns into a snake and it eats the, the staffs of the other, the, the, the sorcerer guys that worked for Pharaoh. And so then there's, and then there's another one, Elijah. He came before the Hebrew people and he confronted the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, which happened to be pretty close to where they were at, just a few miles away. Mount Carmel is in that same region where they were at in Cana. And so, and, with, and in that case, Elijah called down fire from heaven and burned up a sacrifice in the rocks and licked up the water and everything. And then the people believed and then they went and they, they got rid of the prophets of Baal and they returned to God. And so you'd think that because there's this, this pattern that maybe the people really could go and say, well, okay, we've heard rumors you're the Messiah. Prove it. Give us some sort of a sign. Impress us. Right? I can see where they could, they could feel like that. Big message, big sign. But here's where it actually doesn't work necessarily the way that crowd seemed to want it to work. It was because the reign of authority. So God sent Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh. God decided the signs, not Pharaoh. God sent Elijah to call the people as a witness to watch God, uh, watch as God used Elijah to confront the prophets of of Baal. The people stood back and watched. In that story, they stood back. Literally, they said nothing. Elijah called them out and said, are you going to serve Baal or are you going to serve God? Who's the real God? And they stood back and said, well, let's see how this goes. We know how it went, so we think about the story in the context of the rest of the story, but at the time, they didn't have the rest of the story. They had to make a choice, and they refused in that moment to do so. So if Jesus had turned to that crowd and did exactly what they wanted him to do in order to gain their approval, then whose authority, where would be the authority line between Jesus and that group in Cana? Right? If they said, do this, and Jesus said, okay, right? And then the crowd would be given the authority to determine whether Jesus is the Messiah or not. Who gets to determine if Jesus is the Messiah or not? God. Jesus is the Messiah regardless of what that crowd in Cana thought. And so there's that line of authority. And then there's some... And so just just a note about that. And then uh, so Paul wrestles wrestles with that same idea in Galatians 1.10. If you want to, you can look it up. I'm not going to dig it out right now. Galatians 1.10, Paul talks about that. So Jesus, he denies the demands of the crowd for a sign multiple times in his ministry, but he does so in a manner that is always honorable and graceful and surprising. Right? Jesus gets everything right. And if only we were able to walk with equal level of grace and wisdom of Jesus in every circumstance, that would be good. Verse 48, Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And then the very next verse, the royal official says to him, sir, just come down before my child dies. This father doesn't care about drama or signs or wonders or proof that Jesus is something special. He's not debating if Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't care about details of Jesus' deity. He only cares about his child. The man's request 
instantly separates himself from the crowd because he seems to even ignore Jesus' statement. And for that father, the crowd was actually an obstacle between him and his objective. In fact, you might even say that even that idea of signs and wonders in that instance, if that's what the crowd was looking for and that became an obstacle, that's not what this guy was looking for. He wanted his son well. And I say that carefully because all the way through, God uses signs and wonders, right? I just talked about like Moses and Aaron and Elijah and all the way through the book of Acts. God does supernatural things and a lot of times that's proof of the credibility of the gospel over and over and over again. In this instance, it looks like um, this man was looking for something. Now the, now the crowd saw the man's problem as an opportunity. The man simply saw the crowd as an obstacle between him and Jesus. And Jesus was his only solution. And so Jesus responds in a manner that does not give the crowd what they want, but does address the man's heartache and his request. And he just simply says, go, your son lives. No drama, no big parade, no going to the man's house, no raising the boy from the dead, because at this point, I'm not sure, but they might have actually already had the story of Lazarus. I'm not sure. But uh, no, no raising the boy from the dead after he died on the way over. And I doubt the father had any desire for a big show, but he'd heard all the same stories that everybody else had heard, so he might have assumed that's the way it was going to be. He might not have wanted something to look impressive, but he might have expected something like that. And so the man finally gets to make his appeal to Jesus, and Jesus does something completely unexpected. He doesn't come along. He doesn't do anything amazing. He just says, go, your son lives. That's it. His entire world is collapsing around him. He's been gripped by terror and grief for days or maybe weeks. He chased down every single possible solution until they were all exhausted. The man makes a frantic journey to the last hope he has to this Jesus. And that's it. It's okay. Now you can go home. That's a little underwhelming. And so suddenly this man, he has to choose. Is he going to trust Jesus and literally walk away from that answer, leaving Jesus behind? Because he came there to bring Jesus to his son. He has to turn around and walk away. And he had to walk away with an answer that looked different from what he had expected. Can he take Jesus at his word? Verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke, and then he started off. Wow. We're not there. There's so many things in Scripture where it just says a statement and it feels so, feels like so under, such an understatement. The man believed. Wow. So I'm reminded also of Jesus' words to Thomas later on where he said, blessed is the one who has not seen and yet has believed. In my life, there are times when God has answered my prayers and I found myself wishing that he had not answered those prayers. Anybody have those? And then other times God has answered my prayers, but I didn't even notice, at least at first, because his answer didn't look the way I expected it to look. And still other times God has answered my prayers, but I had to wait 10 years or more before he answered those prayers. And I would argue it wasn't because God is slow but it's because I wasn't ready to receive his answer. So here's some questions to, to consider, and then we'll close and I'll pray. Has God answered your prayers in unexpected 
ways in the past? Has he answered prayers and like, oh my word, you answered the prayer. It didn't look the way I expected, but you did. And you're faithful and God is faithful. He's faithful. And then just like that, 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 that man, that royal official as he's described, he comes with the truest desire of his heart. His heart wasn't there to go see something fancy. He was there to, to advocate for his son. And just ask that you would go before the Lord and say, God, help me understand the truest desire of my heart. And pray that. And then the third question is, will you accept Jesus' way of answering your heart's cry? Because I don't know about you, a lot of times I have a picture of what I expect it to look like. And almost always Jesus does something that's a little different than what I expected. Just like he did with this guy. Go, your son's well. Oh man, what do you do? How do you process that? And yet that man, as an example to us, he believed. Um, two weeks ago, um, I, I left with a, a phrase that came out of a song, and I'll just speak that again here. When you don't know what he is doing, remember that you know who he is. God is good. Will you stand with me? I'm going to close in prayer. Mm. God, you love your people And you also love the people that are not your people yet that are waiting in the wings, those people that you died for, that you bought, you paid for their eternity, and yet they have not come to you. God, I ask that you would quicken our hearts and we would become aware of your heart for those that you have purchased and paid for but have not come to belong to you yet. God, it would be wrong for Jesus' blood to be poured out in vain. God, we thank you that you answer the cries of our hearts. Sometimes when we don't even say it out loud, you know the hearts of your children. And Father God, I ask because you're a good father that you would respond to the heart cries of your children here. You're faithful and you're good. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would open our eyes that as you move and you direct and you orchestrate that our eyes would be open to see how you answer prayers in ways sometimes that we don't expect. And may it be that our desire for you would be a pure desire. A pure desire for you. May your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. We need you. We entrust ourselves once again to you. In Jesus' name, amen.